Welcome to episode 372 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You know, we're saying it all the time about how you and I started this whole thing with this idea of let's speak and let's just take the conversations we already have when we're together and let's just put them on the interwebs. And then we realized that, of course, all along, it's really bigger than ourselves, that there were people listening and joining into the conversation, having their own conversations. And then we started to realize there's so many conversations we can have together and so many topics that we can explore together. And on this episode, this is basically a testimony of that exact fact, yes. that the topic itself has come from somebody outside you and I, but who's part of this family of listeners, who's part of the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ that's trying to make their way in the world by processing theology and then making sure that the, that theology isn't just saturated and contained at the head level, but actually manifests itself in daily living. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about what is theology, but what is theology in terms of how we apply it? How do we take all the things maybe that we've talked about for these 371 episodes and actually put that stuff into practice? What are the ways in which maybe we will promulgate that, but also the ways in which the scripture directs us? How do the creeds and confessions speak to that? So many things I joked with you ahead of time that this is only going to be one episode. <laughs> Somehow we're, we're going to fit it all in, but I want to put that out right ahead of us that this is a joint topic. It's everybody together on this one. Yes. Yeah. In some ways, this is the whole project of the Reformed Brotherhood. It's everything. But, you know, it's it's easy to kind of, it's easy to get caught in the weeds of theology and never, never mixing a lot of metaphors here and never come up for air. But like, it's it's very easy to sort of like do a lot of talking about theology and not a lot of application. So we try to always have application, and I think we do a fine job of that. But it, it's good from time to time to talk about that element itself. Like, what what are we doing with a theology show? What are we doing when we read theology? So I'm stoked to kind of dig into that a little bit. Yeah, essentially, it's a question of what are we doing with all the things that we learn about God and about sanctification, about his righteousness and how that applies to our lives. It's a really great question and maybe one we should perennially return to, or maybe more frequently than that, because... That really is the essence of the Christian walk, is putting that right thinking into right living. Of course, all of this under the power of God and by his transformation in our lives. But speaking of which, I think in some ways, is it fair for me to say, like when we do the affirmations and denials, in some ways, we're kind of doing that thing. At least that's our kind of version or spin on that thing is a lot of times I know we receive some feedback about how we tend to, how can I say this like diplomatically? over spiritualize certain things. Yeah. But I think really our jam has been, we can't help but find sometimes again, by God's grace, the spiritual and all the things that we talk about, even when it's things that we want to affirm or deny. So what I'm going to flip this around. Let's do the denial first. So we can end on this high note, launching into this conversation about practical and applied theology. What are you denying against? Yeah. I mean, mine's a, mine's a pretty straightforward one, but one that I don't think people think about. And it's the fact that they don't think about it. That actually is what I'm denying. So I, I've been uh, doing a little bit of reading in the Psalms and I, you know, I have a couple, a couple Psalms that I've worked, worked at memorizing the whole Psalm. They're not super long, but I've memorized Psalm six or Psalm one. Uh, I memorized Psalm 23. And one of the things I noticed that I've been working on Psalm 23 is that a lot of times people ignore the superscriptions on the psalm. So the superscription is usually like that part of the psalm that says a psalm of David or for right. the choir master or when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, right? It's it's not always considered part of the psalm itself. It's it's almost like a title. But I think because, because people re recognize that it's like a title for the psalm, they sort of ignore it as part of the psalm. So like if you were to memorize uh, Psalm 23 and ask someone who has memorized Psalm 23 to recite it, they're going to start, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But the actual start of the psalm, the actual inst inspired start of the psalm, is a psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So I just think we are a people of the book, and we uh, we affirm you know, verbal plenary inspiration, which means every word is inspired. 
And that includes the superscriptions. So like this is common in a lot of psalm singing contexts where uh, most of the time, like the superscription is not part of the song when you sing the psalm. So I just think we have to be careful not to ignore any part of scripture. And this is one of those parts of scripture that I think a lot of times does get ignored. So I don't know that there's like a lot of like deep discussion required about that. Just like pay attention to the superscription. If you're going to read the psalm, make sure you read the actual psalm, including the superscription. Yeah, that's, that's not a bad word right there. Those kind of things. I think sometimes those get chalked up, especially if you're reformed to this idea of like, well, listen, all the verse markers, everything is somewhat arbitrary. It was at least in theory thoughtful, but that's mainly for a modern convention of being able to reference. Right. And sometimes all that subscription gets kind of lumped into that category. Like, well, it's, that's not really for real. It's not part of the inspired word, but there's no doubt if you think about it for just a second, if the Psalms are in many cases, these beautiful expressions in poetry or in song with music accompaniment for God's people to sing and to worship, then it would make sense whether you're a musician or not, that you know that some things need instruction and that instruction is really essential to the expression. And that's what we get in the Psalms. Yeah. So I'm totally with you. That's kind of a fun, it's almost like, that's very meta, isn't it? It's, it's saying, listen, these things are important because they help shape your context understanding. So even though there are ex expressions and instructions that we don't really and can't quite like comprehend by way yeah. of like the language, it doesn't negate the fact that they were given for explicit purpose and that someday in all of eternity we'll have a better sense of what those things mean. But I love that there's thoughtfulness in that. Like all good music has a thoughtfulness component to it. So it's amazing that these come things come with expression. And it's delightful to think that in that time while people were processing and listening and recapitulating and singing these psalms, they went to the expression of that instruction. And so this is the way we ought to do it. And it's a good way to do it. So it's really lovely that God gives us all these things, including it's kind of like a little bonus feature there to have this specific instruction. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it too is like in most English Bibles, um, different translations have different phrasing, but in most English Bibles, there's like a title that's been added to every Psalm. So like Psalm, Psalm 23 is usually got a heading that says the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 24 and the ESV says the King of glory. Psalm 25 says, teach me your paths. So like the editors of the Psalms have, or the editors of the ESV have added titles to the Psalms. And I think because we're used to saying, well, those titles are, are not inspired. We don't recognize that some of the Psalms actually do have titles and instructions that are right. inspired. Um, so, you know, I think like most of the superscriptions uh, in these Psalms say of David or a Psalm of David, like they, right. they're just an indicator of the authorship or even if you want to step away from authorship, like, something they're related to. Um, in Hebrew, the preposition Lamed isn't always attributing authorship. Sometimes it might be like, this is a Psalm related to David, or this is a Psalm written by David or a Psalm about David. But in either case, that, that superscription and in particular that association with David, that is an inspired feature of the text. So even, even like if you listen to a lot of sermons on a particular Psalm, there's very little attention paid to the superscription of the text. And I guess I would ask, like, why would we spend less time exegeting and understanding what God has to say to us in the superscription than we do in the rest of the text? I think is really just the big question. So I, we don't need to belabor that point. It was kind of a small bugaboo that I ran into this week as I was studying a little bit, but I think it's something worth worth thinking through. Yeah, for sure. Again, it's a lovely thing that God gives us all this great knowledge and self-disclosure and he does that in myriad legion kind of ways. One of those is in the direction that he gives by having his people sing and perform and worship in a particular sense. It also is like a great reminder that these things matter to God, that worship itself, the way in which he crafts it, the way in which worship as an expression, especially through music, is due him and that he gets to define that. We don't get to arbitrarily set that course. It's just a good reminder. It's all impounded in the scriptures. We find there a great model for everything that we ought to do, believe, understand how we behave. I just think that's so kind of God to do all that stuff for us. Yeah. There, there, you could conceive of a world in which his self-disclosure was more narrow, and instead he's been very generous with that, and part of that is in this way. Again, I think it's somewhat like a modern conception that we tend to conflate 
because we know that again, as you said, like the chapter headings are not inspired. That somehow that means like everything that's not in the body of the text itself, as we literally look in a page, is somehow ought to be like discounted or thrown out. And that that's not true. So maybe this is just kind of a hey, the more you know, like a PSA. It's an RB PSA. Yeah, they RB PSA. I like that. Yeah, there we go. So uh, my great shocking revelation is I, I realized I don't actually don't have a denial on this particular episode. I, I suppose. Um, yeah, actually, I was going to try to be clever with that, but uh, I just don't have one. So let's just go and be positive. I'll cede the time back to both of us in the form of affirmations because everybody loves a good affirmation. So what are you affirming with? So this is sort of a little bit of a backhanded affirmation, I think. Um, so last week I talked about the article that Kevin DeYoung had written uh, that was sort of a critique of what he was calling the Moscow mood. And Doug Wilson actually wrote a rejoinder to that. So you can find that on his website. It's just called uh, Rejoin My Rejoinder to Kevin D. Young. And, um, you know, the reason that it's a little bit of a backhanded affirmation rather than just like a, a full-on affirmation is it's actually a very good winsome rejoinder. So, you know, Kevin's critique of Doug is that he can be a little bit too sarcastic. He can be... Right. At times, he can use language that's not appropriate. Um, he seems to be uh, totally okay, mock, openly mocking other Christians. Um, you know, which which beyond just like playful jabs. Like I think all of us take playful, sarcastic jabs once in a while. But Wilson seems to be comfortable with with far more than just a playful jab here and there. And to his credit, uh, the article, the rejoinder, is free from that for the most part. There are play actual like playful jabs. But for the most part, it's it's well written. It's winsome. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't dive into sort of the characteristic um, Doug Wilson snarkiness, and that's why this is maybe a little bit of a backhanded um, affirmation. And I actually think proves Kevin's primary critique is though it's it's not as though Doug Wilson is not capable of writing uh, winsome, clear arguments that don't require a thousand qualifications. Um, he's perfectly capable of that. And he did it in this rejoinder. He's done it in other places. And and Kevin closed his uh, his original article with kind of a question of like, why doesn't he just do that? Um, it would be much more effective. It would give his critics much less to latch on to if he just wrote in this style. So I, I appreciate the, the rejoinder. Um, someone shared it in the Reformed Brotherhood chat the other day and kind of joked that they were going to get kicked out, which is, of course, not true. Um, honestly, like I think it is a good, I, I wish that Doug Wilson would write this way more frequently because it, he's a good writer. He does have, um, sharp things to say. I mean, sharp, like smart things to say. And on certain subjects, he can be quite helpful, but it, a lot of that does get lost in sort of this like mess of sloppy metaphors and sometimes inappropriate metaphors and, um, you know, mocking Christians, hostility towards non-believers, um, straight up inappropriate language. It's unbecoming of a Christian, let alone a pastor. If he just stopped doing all that other stuff, um, obviously there are major theological issues that that people from our, our part of the Reformed world would take major concerns with. But if he stopped with all of the other nonsense, it would just make it a lot easier to interact with this stuff, I think. And, and, it's hard to interact with his stuff and not get sucked into critiquing the style and the tone because that's such a huge feature of what he writes. And then of course the response is typically like, well, you're just being the tone police or can't you just get past this? Well, no, but also like if you didn't do that, then we could actually talk about the issues at hand. So I think it's worth a read or a listen if you want to put it in matter or pocket or whatever you're using. Um, it's called my rejoinder to Kevin DeYoung. You can get it on his website, which is it's not his it's the dougwills.com, D-O-U-G-W-I-L-S.com. Um, you should be able to find it pretty easy if you just type like Doug Wilson rejoinder or Kevin DeYoung. You should find it in Google pretty easy. There you go. I like that. Yeah. You you rarely hear in our conversation some kind of, dare I say, like a affirming message. Yeah. like Doug Wilson. But I think maybe this ex exception proves the point that for all of us, it's a really great reminder that it's better not to be a caricature of yourself. It's better not to like put on airs. And in this day and age where clickbait is the thing which draws attention, which inflammatory language 
to try to get some kind of attention to draw people to your cause or draw people to experience your material. It's all too easy to fall into that trap. All of us, I think, experience that temptation. And even if you're thinking you don't, it's probably because you don't have an actual audience where you could use that with some kind of efficacy to draw more people into your sphere. So it's just a good word that letting your yes be yes and your no be no, I think also has to do with how you present yourself online. Yeah. And it's just better to actually be yourself, not to be a caricature because ourselves are sometimes bad enough as they are. So I do appreciate it as well. I, I happen to go back and take a look at that. And I think that for people who will read it that maybe have been turned off in the past from some of the things that Doug Wilson has wrote, you'll find that this is like strangely maybe, if I can say it that way, yeah. like approachable. And I think winsome is the right word that you use there. You might find yourself drawn in even if you disagree to the way the argument is created. And that in itself, I think, is the proper way in which to have actual dialogue, especially among brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I think, um, you know, we, we want to be fair, fair critics and fair reviewers. Uh, uh, I think that's part of what it means to follow and obey the ninth commandment is to be fair and, and equitable, maybe isn't the right word, but to be judicious in our critiques and our reviews and not to not to just be critical of someone because of who they are or what they've written in the past, but to try to take, not that what a person writes in one context is totally abstracted from what they've written in another context. I mean, a, a person's body of work is, is the body of work and it's fair to put any given work within that body of work and critique it on those grounds. But, but to, to try to take each individual thing as much as is possible and appropriate on its own grounds is a good thing. And one of the things that I think um, Doug points out in his rejoinder that I think is actually a very good response is that a lot of what, um, a lot of what Kevin critiques in parts of his article is sort of this um, not well, he critiques a personality-driven um, project. You know, No Quarter November, especially the advertising, is largely about Doug Wilson as a person. It's building a brand around him. But I think there's a fair criticism, and Wilson points this out, that like the Gospel Coalition is also a very brand-driven kind of organization. Um, and he points out that you know Kevin gets upset that Doug takes cheap shots at the ERL, ERLC or G3, um, and points out that they would be on the same side of many of the the cultural battles that Doug Wilson is on, but this the converse is true too, right? So like the ERL, ERLC um, or ELRC, whatever it is, um, they would also sometimes take maybe not cheap shots in the same sense, but they would also exclude Doug Wilson from their orbits. Um, G three would exclude Doug Wilson in a lot of ways from their orbits. Um, not necessarily just on theological grounds. So I think some of that, some of that response from, from Wilson is, is useful. And I think that's part of why it's such a good article is it, you're able to see that Doug Wilson actually is capable of this reasoned, rational conversation that is not, not characteristic of his, of what he normally writes. I mean, I don't read a lot of Doug Wilson. I don't want to paint this picture like I'm I'm a Doug Wilson aficionado. I've read everything he has to say, but it's not uncommon for the rhetorical points to get lost in the rhetorical flourishes that Doug Wilson uses. Maybe that's a good way to put it is he, he coats everything he writes in these rhetorical flourishes. And some of that is a rhetorical flourish of a, of a controversial or a, um, a aggressive metaphor right? Um, some of what he has to say, you know, one of his famous articles uh, has to do with human sexuality and, and the roles that men and women play in that. And what he's saying in that article is not necessarily all that controversial at times, but the way that he says it and the metaphors that he uses, it's similar to that article. I forgot the guy's name, but that article that they, that they published on the gospel coalition um, that they had to pull where the guy used all these weird metaphors about um, sex and, and insemination and things like that for the Trinity. Some of what he had to say was not all that controversial, but the way that he said it and the crassness with which he said it made it controversial. And so some of, some of what he was saying gets masked or gets, gets um, obscured or papered over by the flourishes that get put on top of it. 
And I, I do think that if Doug Wilson just was was more straightforward in his writing and did not spend as much time trying to be a controversialist, uh, I think his writing would be much more approachable and much more well-received in, in general in the Christian world. So check it out. I think it's worth a read. We want to be fair. And his his article, it's a good response. Um, there's there's good response. It's good interaction. He takes Kevin seriously. He doesn't attack Kevin's character. Um, it's a it's a very much a respectful and useful response to what Kevin had to say. I don't know that there's going to be much co- more conversation about it. It's kind of one of those topics that there isn't probably going to be much ground to be gained uh, or much um, much compromise or much adjustment on either side of the question. But it's useful to see both sides articulate the issue in clear, straightforward terms that don't rely on sort of this inflammatory rhetoric. It also strikes me that this is maybe like very connected to what we're about to talk about, because I think sometimes when I see these things online, I'll, I'll just be totally candid with everybody. I, it reminds me that theology can be entertainment. Theology can be just like cerebrally stimulating. Theology can be a hobby horse. And it's, I think, best to know and to approach some of these things with a discerning attitude to understand what's worth wading into and what's worth even spending your time on because you may wade into all these things, read through what everybody has to say, and at the end of it, either be no better off or have no better application or have been better spent going and hanging out with your children than it was thinking that somehow because you've been involved in something that was quote unquote overtly spiritual or overtly theological or overtly nuanced with respect to theology that you're better off. Yeah. So these kind of things I always kind of put on the margin for me, everybody's going to have their opinions and it's better, of course, as you said, to express those in a God honoring, God fearing, loving way with others. But most of the time to be quite honest and some of the stuff that's like on the margin I wonder how useful it actually is to that practical, pragmatic living. There is this place where like, of course, like to know more potentially could be to worship better and to live your life more fully, but also those have diminishing returns really, really, really quickly because probably most of us would be better served with spending our time honoring the Decalogue, for instance, as opposed to getting and wading into like this more esoteric stuff. So I understand, again, that we live in a day and age where people can make their livelihood by being able to express these ideas and have lots of time to go into all these things and to put them out on the internet and then to converse with one another in ways that are still like distanced and where there's this kind of benevolent way in which they don't have to actually interact face-to-face. All those are fine. I think as much as you appreciate and understand that, that stuff just happens. And you don't have to get involved if you don't want to. So this is this is on the margin for me. Again, I can I can appreciate, but that like somebody always in every particular thing is going to be right. Yeah. Somebody's always going to be wrong. But the extent to which you invest your time and energy in that, especially with a keen eye toward what is this going to do to help me be a better father, husband, wife, mother, like it, those things are also worth considering in the context of whether or not you get emotionally involved. Some people get very emotionally involved in this. I think you know what I mean. Oh yeah. I I used to be that guy for sure. Like I would get all heated up about stuff and, and I think I'm always just a hairbreadth away from, from being that guy again. And, and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with being emotionally or, or, you know, temporally. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with being invested, being invested in some of this stuff. But I used to be probably overly invested in this stuff. And, you know, like last week I joked that like I didn't even remember that no quarter November was a thing. And to be just to be really honest with you, like it was good for my soul that I just didn't care that that crap was happening. Right. It was just good for me. I have more important things to do um, than to worry about what some dude in like Idaho is doing on YouTube. Like, I think when we look back. Certainly when we look back on this this time in history from the perspective of eternity, right? Eternity forward, like Doug Wilson isn't even a footnote on on like a history book in in 50 years. And that isn't to diminish Doug Wilson. Like that isn't to be that isn't intended to be a slam. Doug Wilson is not a footnote 
Um, like Kevin DeYoung is probably not a footnote in a history book in a hundred years from now or 200 years from now. Jesse and I aren't even a footnote on a genealogical record of our own families in 200 years from now. So like, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like if there's nothing wrong with being invested in addressing current controversies and, and I mean, we've talked about this before and maybe we're, maybe we're just transitioning into the topic, but like your primary responsibility and what you do with theology always is going to, it's always going to work in concentric circles out from where you sit. Right. Right. So, so, um, I remember, uh, there was a, a video trailer for, um, like a video or like a movie that was being put out by founders, um, organization about like, um, critical race theory in the SBC or something like that. And I remember I wrote a brief article on my my blog at the time. And I, there was a line in there was like, I'm an elder at a small Baptist church and nobody in my congregation even knows who these people are. So I don't really have a lot of dog in this fight. And, and I think that's, that's like real world when we're talking about these theological controversies is yeah. My congregation that I'm an elder in that I'm spiritually responsible for that I have some level of spiritual oversight over, they don't even know who Doug Wilson is. They have no clue who that is. They don't care. And I think that your level of engagement and commitment to being involved in these kinds of things um, really does, should have some sort of um, rational, and I'm using that in terms of like some sort of ratio. There should be a reasonable ratio of your responsibilities in the real world to how this article or this controversy impacts the real world. EFS, like that's something that impacts the whole evangelical church because of the way that it's it's promulgated through things like the ESC study Bible. It, it, there's a good likelihood that in an average size congregation in the United States that's sort of reformed flavored, somebody is reading an ESV study Bible. So it, it makes sense for us to be involved and understand what's going on with, with ESS. Something like the federal vision, it's kind of a niche topic. And in most cases, even people in the reform world aren't fully aware of what that even means, right? So I think I think that kind of does transition us into our topic. It's like, how do we really take these theological things we're learning, whether it's controversies we're engaged in online or through podcasts or articles we're reading or books we're reading, how do we take that and actually like put shoe leather on, on that and actually make practical application to our life, I think is the big thing. And I wanted to start out just by reading something from the, the gospel of Matthew here. Um, this is Matthew chapter seven. It's verses 24 through 27. Let me just switch this to the version that I actually want to read it in. I don't know why I pulled it up in the ESV. It's probably because I'm not using Logos Bible software, which okay. by the way, you can still go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos. We still have some uh, affiliate links if you did want to pick that up. But this is Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 7, chapter 24 through 27. Reading out of the ESV, it says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So the reason I wanted to read that is because this question about how do we actually apply the theology that we're studying, um, it's centrally centrally defined in this, uh, this question. The reason it's an important question is because of this passage, right? We can hear, we can learn all the facts about God, right? Theology, if you really break it down, is like the facts about God. The, the study of God, the words about God, that's what the, the word theology literally means. If we don't actually apply that, if we don't, if we hear those words, but we don't apply them, then we're like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And at the end of the day, that will wash away. So this, this may sometimes feel like it's kind of a, like a, I don't know, like a, a question that almost doesn't need to be asked, but it really is central to our Christian faith. How do we take the knowledge and the facts that we have 
that we've we've learned about God, we've we've understood from the scriptures, we've been taught by the church in the creeds and the confessions and the catechisms or in systematic theologies. How do we take that and then actually apply it to our lives and have it be such that we're not just hearing the words, but we're we're doing the words that we're being taught? That's the question in hand. It's a good question because I I don't know that it's particularly obvious because like even since the time of Aristotle and Plato, there's been this sense of it's one thing to know, it's another thing to apply that knowledge onto wisdom. And like, this is a great testimony right here. Lest anybody cr- come at us, Tony, and say that we don't actually have like genuine conversation right now because you and I are just talking. So that means like we move through our topics. But for everybody else, they're listening to what they conceive as a program. So let me just save us some emails real quick and say that I do have an affirmation. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> And actually, surprisingly, it's, it's all related to this uh, conversation. So let me just jump into like, I'm just going to double take my affirmation as like part of what we can do that for me has been just like a steadfast way in which to apply this. And that is uh, music in particular. So we're in a season where music is particularly important, or let's say this, particularly relevant in a kind of a different way or, or resonant, maybe is a better way of saying that. So uh, let me just throw an album out for everybody. Some people have different feelings about this. Whether your celebration of Advent is codified and formal or a little bit more casual and informal, doesn't matter to me. If you're looking for a great album to just celebrate that with and to get this theology into your mind, like to really have it meditate because it's part and parcel of musical expression and melody, I'm just going to tell you that you should go and listen to Shadow and Light Advent. And this is just like a playlist has been put together. I listened to this on Spotify. It, the beauty about this is it's not just like quote unquote Christmas songs. It's got Praise to the Lord by Sarah Groves. It's got uh, of, the Lo- of the Father's Love Begotten. If you have not listened to Of the Father's Love Begotten like in the last two months, what are you even doing? So yeah. listen to that. And then there's all kinds of good stuff, including like some really traditional stuff. Listen to Canticle of the Turning that will just mess you up. Such rich theology. Most of this album is in kind of like a contemporary, like folk kind of style. There's a little Sufjan Stevens uh, covering Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which is fantastic. And it ends, which I think is in this great zenith of Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson, which again, if you don't want to walk through, sorry, not walk, run through a wall, though you would have the power to walk through it as well. After listening to that, I don't know what you're doing. But to answer your question, I think part of that is like we get a call from God into worship and that call comes essentially as a start, as expression through singing. So for me, I always start in this place of uh, music, quite honestly. I think that like you and I have talked about historically speaking in the history, the grand arc of the church, things like having this access to the scriptures in myriad forms is completely unusual and unprecedented. So expressions of otherwise kind where you are memorizing where you're hearing predominantly those are really the more traditional expressions and those ought to lead into some kind of application because you are you do not have the crutch of being able to just to go back and to quote from chapter and verse by way of looking at it but you're trying to promote an environment in which you're metabolizing something that's actually a digestion process or like a chewing of the cud, which is essentially like the metaphor in Psalms for what it means to meditate on the scriptures. And that predominantly happened by way of music and hearing the word and prayer. So that when you got to Jesus' time, you know, those who had, like, I want to say, I want to say religiously as a pun, those who had like faithfully attended synagogue over like a lifetime, essentially, had so, had become like so thoroughly steeped in the Torah that they were able to understand it and process it as they went out from that day and throughout the week. So it is a challenge that these practices for us, before we can even get to asking the question, like I have to wonder, uh, let me, let me get your opinion on this and then I'll stop talking is like, I sometimes wonder this kind of question, like how do we apply our theology? It's a good question. And I'm not demeaning the question because I think it's the right question to ask. The irony is though, would other generations have asked this question? That is to say, like, were they so separated from this act of learning and application that they had to spend time and understanding? Or was there something about the way in which they were experiencing God, trusting in him, hearing the proclamation of the gospel, participating even through music and prayer, 
that this became commonplace in rope because they were so thoroughly saturated. So I'll stop. Let me ask you the question. Is this a novel question? Is this contemporary in some degree? Yeah, I don't think it's a novel question. Um, but I think perhaps the reason that we struggle with the question might be might be what's novel about it. So that's what I'm saying. I think this is a hard I'm, I'm trying to struggle how to respond to this because I, I don't want to um, I'm with you like this is an excellent question. And this isn't intended in any way as like a slam against the person who brought this topic up or, or the person sure. hypothetical or actual who struggles with this issue. But it's almost like it's a category confusion in my mind. Like, right. like the fact that we ask this question, it is based on presuppositions that actually um, move us in the wrong direction. So like when we when we presuppose that theology has to be applied in the first place rather than theology being simply what it is to be a Christian. Like this, uh, let me put it this way. Like the question divides theology from Christian living, right? right. It, it divides yeah. the idea that like there's Christian living and there's following Jesus and there's, there's sanctification and there's obedience to God and then there's theology and it's this secondary thing. And what we have to do is figure out how to integrate theology into the, those other things. And, and what I would want to say, and again, this is not to, this is not to lift myself up as someone who's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I can, I'm certainly guilty of locking myself away in an ivory tower at times uh, and studying old books and then struggling to figure out how to actually do, do what, anything as a relation to that. But when we separate Christian living from knowing God or from understanding God or from getting getting to know God intellectually, when we've made that separation, it's like we've already created a division that right. shouldn't be there. So I think if you I don't love comparing my relationship to God to like a like a relationship with my wife or like a dating relationship. But like if you think about um if you think about this question transposed into that scenario, like if a man was courting a woman or pursuing a woman and he was like, well, how do I take all these facts that I know about this woman and apply it to loving this woman? That would be really super creepy, right? Like, like it's, it's somehow divorcing the idea that you can know facts about someone abstracted from the actual relationship you have with them. And like, Someone who researches a bunch of facts about a girl that they like and and isn't actually in a relationship and isn't isn't gaining those facts in the context of a relationship, coming to know those realities about those persons in the context of a relationship, that's like a weird, unhealthy kind of relationship. It's almost like stalking, right? It's like a stalker who's like researching a person. I think the fact that we ask this question, actually, we need to get back from that. And we, what we need right. to say is like, God, let me put it this way. The reason, and this is one of those episodes where like, we're desperately trying to answer the question, but we can't quite get to it. Like, I feel like, like we're continuing to theologize, but the reality is that anything that we know about God, any, any fact we come to know about God is presupposed because he has revealed it to us. Yeah, right. So like right. the most practical element of theology is that you have to be in relation with God to do theology. Right. And so this question and again this is not this is not a slam on the person who asked the question. Um because I think I think we all struggle with this to to greater or lesser degrees. For sure. The question presupposes that you can have knowledge about God and that it can somehow be not practical, which doesn't make any sense if we start from the presupposition that all knowledge of God comes from relationship with God. It comes from relationship with the triune God. And I, you know, if I, if I want to reframe the question, I think it's more like we get this knowledge in relationship with God, but how do we, how does that work itself out into ongoing sanctification or, or how does the Holy Spirit utilize this this practice of theology in in his work of sanctification, I think is probably the crux of the question. And you know, 
I've been studying uh, the the listener who's been with us for a couple months will will be familiar with the fact that I've been studying some Stoic philosophy. Prelet preliminary, preliminary, predominantly <laughs> through uh, the work of kind of a modern Stoic philosopher, um, Ryan Holiday. I wouldn't say that he's even a scholar of Stoic philosophy, although he's done a fair amount of research. He really more is a modern day Stoic rather than a, like a scholar of Stoicism. Right. And, and one of the things that I think is really important, and I've learned this from studying studying his flavor of Stoicism, man, I just can't talk tonight. Stoicism is a hard word. Is that like Stoicism put up on a shelf isn't actually Stoicism. Like if you're not applying the principles of Stoicism, then you're not actually a Stoic. Um, and, and I think Christian theology, and I, I wish that I had more time in my life to really do this project, but there is so much, there's so much affinity between Christian theology, Pauline, Pauline theology particularly, not that Pauline theology is different from like Jesus theology, but Paul's articulation of Christianity and Christian theology in the, in the epistles, there's so much affinity with Stoic, Stoic wisdom. Um, I would love to do a project to really show that a little bit more thoroughly. But a lot of what Paul teaches in the Bible, it's really grounded in this idea that what we believe about God and then what we do in relation to that belief about God is inseparable. And I think that's the, that's the crux of math. what we read here of Christ's teaching in Matthew is, Unless we are doing what we hear, then we might as well not hear what it is that we're hearing. So we can know we can know all the facts about the Trinity that we can know, or we can know all the facts about eschatology or whatever whatever low side of Christian theology it might be. But unless that's actually working its way into our lives, unless it's actually changing and affecting how it is that we relate to this Creator who's revealing Himself to us then it might as we we actually probably would be better off not knowing it. So I think that that getting that um getting that paradigm readjusted where we're no longer making this distinction between Christian theology and Christian living. Um I think that's the first step in all of this is you know when I pick up um you know I'm reading Lord Jesus Christ by Daniel Trier from Zondervan's new dogmatic series. It's very good. It's very dense. I'm only on like I just finished chapter two. I've had the book for like two and a half months. It's super, super thick um, in terms of reading. But why would I be spending all this time working on this and reading it if it wasn't actually doing something? So like I can tell you that like one of the things, chapter two is about like the cosmic Christ, basically like the Christ uh, who sustains the cosmos. Uh, maybe that's chapter one. But w- one of the first two chapters is on the cosmic Christ. That works its way into my life in understanding that it's not just the big events of history that are determined by God. Christ is the cosmic Christ who is upholding and commanding every single atom of the universe. So even the little things that seem to happen in my life, the the, the small occurrences, right? This this phone call happens at this particular time, or I get stuck at this traffic light, or I get sick on a particular day. Those aren't just happenstances. Those are things that God has ordained, that, that the, the cosmic Christ who upholds the universe by the word of his power is not only allowing to happen, but is sustaining in its happening. Like that's that's what I mean, is like you have to get what you're learning and what you're studying, what you're hearing has to be. You have to go into that study with the premise that this is foundational to who I am in Christ and what I do in Christ. If we can get that part of our mindset readjusted, then I think the rest of the question answers itself, right? We could, I mean, I think we could probably, and I'll let Jesse comment on this in a minute here, but like we could probably give you practical steps for how to like take a theology book and then take what you're learning and actually do something with it. But I think it's more important to get that premise correct, that, that when we study theology, we have to do it from the stance of understanding that this is about who we are in Christ and what we do in Christ. If you get that premise right, then then the, all of the practical steps, I think they kind of they just fall into place on their own. It's possible that in some ways this question has like a particular reformed bent, and I 
also myself find a penchant to ask this question. And I think in part that's because the Reformed tradition is one that's focused on the truth, focused on understanding what we can, focused on studying. And we stand on all these great evangelical shoulders who have done that for us, who have articulated things that are complex and deep. And because we want to know, and there's beauty and joy in knowing, the Reformed faith embraces all those things and says, give me all the things that I can possibly know. And then once you start to know those things, you say, what if it's possible that just knowing isn't being and just knowing isn't practicing and knowing isn't doing? And those are all, I think, completely fair questions. So we struggle with that. And I think that that's particular to to our kind of bent and stream of theological expression. I'm going to try to answer the question directly, because I think the way you reframed it was good, which is having all this knowledge, how do you know that you're actually applying it? What can you do actually take all this knowledge? And I remember thinking at some points, maybe even not long ago, that sometimes, and maybe if you're honest with yourself, you agree with me, sometimes, and this is a safe place, so you're in the circle of trust right now, in your car, <laughs> while you're cleaning, while you're doing dishes, it's safe. So you can just admit it if you want. That is that if you're like me, study something because it's either been pressed upon you or because you have this conviction within yourself that you need to know the right way to articulate something. So when somebody asks you, you can teach them cogently and clearly and unambiguously and with great conviction to right or wrong or to correct the internet that you need to have the right way. And sometimes that can give us this sense that that deserves like hegemony over the application and living that out. And then you think like we're talking about now, so how do I connect those two? Because I I have some conviction that like oftentimes I study things because yes, I'm interested in it, but I'm interested in like, I'm interested in why the sky is blue and what's the best way to plan for my retirement. And so we can abstract these things into pure facts. While at some point there is this place in our hearts and in the corner of our minds that says, But this is theology. This is God. It's more than just knowing things and being able to know those things so as instructs others. It's supposed to be in my Monday morning. And that is the rub. So without further ado, here's my answer. And it's the the most clear answer I can try to give. And that is, if we truly believe that like all knowledge comes from God, that even like Daniel himself, he asked that God would Uh, give him great success in learning this, what we might call secular knowledge when he's taken to Babylonian captivity. And he recognizes that God gives that knowledge. Um, I think of a non-reformed theologian, uh, A.W. Tozer, who said that he studied Shakespeare on his knees because he understood that God is the one who gives all knowledge. Then my answer is this, the best, and I think, and I'm biased, this is my answer, the only way to make sure that everything that you're learning is applied to your life is to start with prayer. It's always just asking that God would illuminate and that God would do. If we truly believe as Reformed people that God can do anything to everything, that he does all the verbs, then it really doesn't even matter what kind of intellect we apply to the things that we think that we're putting into our minds. What we ought to be asking is, and maybe this is like as easy as creating ratios, equal time and prayers we spend in study that this idea that unless we ask God to do it and he will do it if we ask that we need not worry that we apply ourselves and that we overexert our energy in trying to overthink how the things that we're thinking about be applied in the ways in which we live that instead it's better to say heavenly father would by the power of your holy spirit would you come and one fill me and two illuminate me and three take everything that you apply into my mind and my heart into action on this particular day. That really is the only way. Anytime we like, like you're saying, we divorce those things and and ask the question of like, which is still good, of course, because I'm asking myself, how do I apply those things is to miss the point that we don't apply those things. Yeah. And only Christ himself can open our eyes and unstop our ears and put us in a direction with the kind of ethical, moral, spiritual fortitude to live them out. It all belongs to him. So really, I think prayer is the thing that allows us to take theology and apply it. And as you said, Tony, when we are praying regularly, which is to say that is itself a form of relationship and consummate harmony and communion with God, that when we're embracing that and participating in that, I would wager to say that if you had a season in your life where you feel your prayer closet is particularly deep, probably out of a a time of need in particular, that what you would also say is that your application of theology, as you go back retrospectively and evaluate that, 
was the strongest it's been across other times. It's because of the prayer. So really, this is about asking God that God would do the thing, that he would do all the things. Yeah. And that as he illuminates our minds, that he would also at the same time, because he's equal to the task, giving both the indicative and the imperative, that he would apply that. So uh, I have nothing else to say. I mean, that, that's that's it. I mean, I, and yeah. I'm humbled by that answer because like we've, we've done a whole series on prayer and and how we feel unequal to that task and not yet good at it. And that's okay. But I think that maybe what we're, we're saying here is that our theology and our application is always contingent upon who we are. And because of that, we need to rely on God to do all the things. And that includes how we apply it. Yeah. And I think maybe the last thing I'll say too is this is something that just takes practice too. Like, I think there are a lot of people who come to a study of theology and they think or they feel like they have to be the one to figure out how to apply it. They have to, they have to be the one to figure out how do we make this, how do we make this theology practical? But I think the reality is that um, whatever subject we study, right, whether it's theology or philosophy or how to fix a car or how to make a podcast, when we take knowledge in, whatever the source might be, whatever the reality is, that is going to work itself out into our life, right? If, right. if you if you read a book um, and you really read it well, those phrases, the the concepts behind it, this is part of why it's it's so important to be careful about what you consume, right? Because garbage in, garbage out, right? But in the same way, like really good stuff in, really good stuff out. In, in my life, what I've found is if you don't start from the, pre the premise that theology is separate from Christian living, if you're not starting from that premise, then the theology that you, you are building and you're developing and you're studying, it will automatically work itself out in your life, right? So whether, whether that is, um, like here's a perfect example. We, we commented on this several times during our Ten Commandments series or the portion of our systematic theology that was covering the Ten Commandments. My study of the Ten Commandments, right? When I started to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism and I got to the portion on the Ten Commandments, memorizing that, those words, and really thinking about what it is that the Bible means when it says, um, honor your father or your mother or um, remember the Sabbath day, whatever it might be. When I started to really think about that and ponder it and meditate on it, it changed the way that I lived, right? So, so when you really actually do allow this stuff to become embedded in you and, and to change you, it will automatically flow out in theological application, right? You, 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 um, take any one of the 10 commandments. Um, if you really spend time studying and really spend time digesting and mulling over and, and pondering about and praying about and thinking about what these words mean, what, what this phrase means, and you read what, what the reformed divines have said and what other great Christian saints have said, and you, you study what the scriptures say in relation to this, there's no way that that can't change how you live because you're, you're either going to have to allow it to shape you um, or, or I would actually say it, it will shape you unless you are, are intentionally trying for it and not to shape you. And I think that that's the last kind of reframing that I would put on this. A person who is coming to the scriptures and then subsequent to coming to the scriptures is coming to what the Holy Spirit has spoken through, uh, and not in like an inspired sense, but just in a providential sense. What God has said through the church, whether that's through ecclesiastical documents like the creeds and confessions, or whether that's through private documents like the the systematic theologies that we read, Boving, Turretin, Horton, whoever it might be. When we come to that and we study it, 
unless we are sort of intentionally sealing that off from our lives and treating it as exclusively an academic topic, it is going to work itself out. And so I don't think the question is so much um, how do we apply theology to life? It's really more uh, really more along the lines of like reframing our thought processes to not put barriers in place to prevent what's already going to happen from happening. And if, if you're one of those people that is studying a lot of theology or reading a lot of different theology books, you're listening to a lot of theology podcasts, and you're not seeing you're not seeing it um, have fruit in your life. My advice, uh, we're kind of hesitant on this show to give advice, but I will in this case because I think I have some I think I have some history in this is my advice would be to simplify. Back off a little bit on the real technical stuff and go back to the basics, right? Get get into the catechism. Like honestly, the most spiritually significant thing apart from building um and I don't want to say this in the legalistic sense because I think sometimes we can get really legalistic about daily Bible reading. But apart from building a daily Bible reading habit and committing to to being in the Word for a significant amount of time, and I'm not talking about like hours. I'm talking about like 10 or 15 minutes a day. Apart from that habit, spending time pondering and meditating on and memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism has been the single most significant spiritual thing I've done in my private life that I think has ever been the case. And I think getting back to the basics and really, really rooting yourself in the basics and grounding yourself in that before you move on to the more in-depth or technical or advanced or particular stuff, that is what's going to pay dividends, I think, in your spiritual life. You can read all of the technical theology you want, and and that might be good and well. But if you haven't really allowed God to master you in the basics, that's a weird way to phrase it, but I think it's right, to master you in the basics, that stuff's not gonna it's not gonna do anything. It's just gonna sit in your brain and it's not gonna it's not gonna bear fruit because the ground hasn't been plowed. the, the soil hasn't been prepared for that yet. So if you're struggling with this, if you feel like the theology that you're working on, you're reading, you're listening to, whatever it might be, is not doing anything in your life, then I would say take a step back and simplify a little bit. And I think you'll find that that actually will help a lot. Memorize the catechism, build a daily Bible reading habit. Like Jesse said, spend time praying, sing the Psalms, sing sing good Christian hymns that you, you are exposed to. Um, I think that will make a big difference. And on one level, we've said this before, like if you want to be a runner, you can only that reading about running can only get you so far towards becoming a runner. At some point you have to tie your shoes and get out on the road. And I think theology is the same way. Like you can spend a lot of time reading academic theology and, and at some point, like you have to start studying theology in the crucible of life, in the crucible of the church. Like you have to start studying theology as it actually unfolds in reality in relation with Jesus before you you see this stuff come to fruit. I think that's fair. I think that that's a good way to close. There's an admonition in there as well, which is to say, if I'm if I'm picking up what you're saying, this idea that really the Holy Spirit empowers all these things. So when you say, for instance, if you're listening to these things, reading these things, not impacted by them what we're really presupposing is that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit does what he does. That's his jam is to apply these things. So it might be helpful to strip those back and come back to some first principles by way of imploring him to come and to work among you, to fill you up again, which is to say as well that you might ask, are there places in your life? And this may not be the case, but it often isn't many for, for many of us that you're quenching the Holy Spirit. And so this idea that what he brings us to he wants us inevitably to apply. There isn't like no separation as if he's saying like, well, I want you to learn it today, but in three weeks time, we'll just turn this around and put this into action. So there is a lot of pressure in Christian communities to say like, you ought to be learning always, you ought to be reading always, especially then that's magnified or in kind of the reform circles where it's like, what Puritan thing are you reading right now? Yeah. What systematic theology are you processing right now? And all those things can in fact be good, but it might be an adventure missing the point if all we're doing is filling our head with facts, like you said, and we're essentially as if God had a house, we're driving by it with our lights off and we're going through his trash 
just so we <laughs> might know more things about him without knowing him. Yeah. And the knowing him comes from the relationship and it starts, I think, predominantly, like you said, with prayer. And so it starts to change, I think, even for me as I'm talking about it now, like the emphasis, the entry point, the door which we walk through all this we're learning. If we're walking through a door that says, God, have your way in me. I submit to you. I yield to you. Holy Spirit, educate and change me. Sanctify me in your truth because your word is truth. Then that changes the way in which we approach the scripture such that we're not thinking, you know what? My neighbors, they need to know this. So let me make sure that I understand it cogently. There is value in that, but maybe not the greatest value, especially when we forsake the application ourselves or forsake the learning or the way in which the learning is applied to ourselves just to say, well, I know more than you do. So it's a it's a struggle, I think, for all of us. Because like if you're like me, and I don't know if maybe you as well, Tony, is that it's fun to know more things. And yeah. God is like amazingly interesting and glorious. But just because we have a curiosity about God because he's interesting doesn't mean that we're actually applying and living out our theology well. So that's like maybe the unique struggle that we face those of us who have this interest in God by way of the fact that he is interesting just because he's interesting doesn't mean that we're taking and appropriating that knowledge in a way that's helping us to, you know, be transformed. And in that way, I think to the questioner, I want to say, I'm with you. I love you. And that drives me back into saying, Holy spirit, have your way because there's nothing that I know that he has not yet provided to me. There's nothing that I comply that he has not empowered in my life. And so I'm just, I think maybe it's a doubling down on leaning into the fact that he does all these things for my good. And so therefore I'm going to get on my knees and say, any learning I have has to come through God himself, through this great execution of the plan of salvation in Jesus Christ, and then applied to me in the spirit. And I'm really after that application. So I'm going to come before him and say, Lord, would you make known in my life? Would you do the thing in my life? Would you promise to do? And the minute that I worry too much that I'm doing all of the right things is maybe the minute that I've taken my eyes off the one who does all the right things yeah. in my life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I think that's a good, that's a good place for us to stop is that at the core of this question the answer, as it is in all areas of Christian theology, the answer is Jesus, right? Mm. So the way that we apply theology to life and the way that it becomes, the way that it has shoe leather is to remember, as you said earlier, Jesus does all the verbs. So so we shouldn't go into this thinking that our, um, that that the way that we make this theology practical is by us making it practical. The way that we make this theology practical is that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, makes this theology practical. Uh, amen. And if if you are experiencing the, that theology, the, your study of theology or practice of of theology, whatever you want to call it, is not practical, th- then really that has to go back to prayer. It has to go back to seeking Jesus in theology rather than th- seeking theology in and of itself. So I think that's a good place for us to wrap it up. We are going to be doing more of these uh, listener-based topic kinds of suggestions over the coming weeks, months, years, however many topics we can get until we get to our next series. Who knows what that's going to be? Um, So if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like us to talk about, you can join our Telegram chat at t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. You'll see all sorts of sub-channels. There's a general one. There's a memes one. There's a prayer request one. There's also one called Topics or something along those lines. So if you have an idea for a, a podcast episode you'd like us to talk about, hop in there, scan through the topics that have already been posted. And if something uh, something is similar enough, then just put a thumbs up on that. We kind of look at how many of these are getting traction, what's, what's generating some movement in the channel. Uh, we don't want to be redundant. But we would love to hear your suggestions and your thoughts. There's already some great suggestions in there. We're starting to dig into that. And if, if this has been a useful show to you, whether this is your first time listening or whether you've been listening since episode one, uh, and you want to get involved in helping us to, to keep making these episodes, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Reform Brotherhood. Uh, we don't have benefits or bonuses or special, you know, special private access for, for Patreons. Everything we do 
uh, is intended to be free and fully accessible. But the only reason that we can do that is because there's people who have uh, generously provided funds for us to be able to do that. So if you'd like to join that uh, group of people, you can join us at uh, patreon.com slash reform brotherhood, uh, and you can give as much or as little as you feel is helpful. Everything is helpful to us. That's the truth, no matter what it is. And I'm going to also put a plug in. I can't remember if Tony, you and I talked about this like off the air, which is to say it would have been like two seconds or if I said <laughs> this last time on the air, but the season is approaching where you and I will be actually in person with one another. We're going to record at least one episode, but probably a bunch of them because we just have fun talking together. Did I say this on the air where I, okay. I gave out this challenge? Okay, so I'm going to give it again, which is you can email us. It's a simple email address. It's at it's info at reformbrotherhood.com. And the challenge I think I gave was because we're going to be in per- person, why don't you send us any question you want to ask about either Tony or I, or maybe you might like to have our wives answer that question about us or about themselves in some way. The only way I'm telling you, you're probably going to get my wife on this podcast is if you submit questions for her to ask. It's true. So that's just a little fun challenge for you. And you have a little bit of time ahead of you. And I know you listeners are out there who have tracked with us for a long time. I know you got questions. Whatever they are, I'm just throwing it out there. If you want to have some fun, if you want to ask a question, you're welcome to. If you don't, then just keep doing what you're doing. And you just end the podcast and you go on with your life. But if for some reason you're thinking, you know what? I've always wanted to. Why don't I do it? This is your time. Info at reformbrotherhood.com. Wouldn't you love to have some people ask you some random questions? About your life, yeah, or and, answer some questions about your life, yeah, and we're not talking about like theological questions. Like, if you <laughs> want to know like anything. what shoe size Jesse wears, <laughs> you can ask that question. Yeah, um, we're not going to answer know. weird questions, and honestly, like we say that, but like I don't anticipate there's going to be weird questions. But um, like, get we 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 want to be an open book, and we 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 realize that sometimes it's fun to sort of like peek behind the curtain of a podcast. So if you have questions whether they're personal questions or goofy questions, if you want to know like- Whatever, have some fun. If you want to know like what Jesse's weirdest childhood feature was, like we all have that weird thing when we're a kid, you ask us and we'll put the mic in front of Jesse's mom and Jesse's dad. I guarantee you they're going to give you different answers. Uh, or, Or if you want to know like what his favorite meal is right now, we'll ask Jen. And she'll answer it probably, or she'll tell us to get the microphone out of her face. We're not sure what's yeah. going to happen, but it will be fun. It will, no matter what you, you'll it's hear some true. interesting things. So if you're looking maybe for a change of pace, and as the year draws to close, maybe for something fun, I throw that out there. Here's another thing. This is how everybody can tell we're serious. We're going to let the listeners decide. You all get to pick if we do this kind of episode. If not, we'll just keep going. It's okay. Yeah. Well, Jesse, in in light of keeping going and not making this episode longer than it already has become. Until next time, honor everyone. Let's love that brotherhood, everyone.